Every week, we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we celebrate resilience. It's not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. We're really lucky today. We have Bob Vogel. Bob has done a variety of different things. I don't know if we're going to have enough time to get into everything you've done, but you've been an adventurer from the time you were little, right? Like scuba, scuba certification at 13 years old. You've yep. taken a hang glider to 20,000 feet. Yep. You were the stunt double for Kendo in yep. Hot Dog. Yep, Kendo, you know I mean? and, and and also Dan O'Callaghan's character, uh, which David David Naughton. Um, so yeah, okay. the, yeah. So you're yeah. so you were in Hot Dog. I mean, this is like I I kept thinking about this. And Bob, just first welcome, and then we'll Thank get in. It's a pleasure to be here. This is really cool. <laughs> I'm super excited that you're here. I was thinking that we were going to kind of warm up to Hot Dog, but as I was reading through all of your stuff, Hot Dog seems to be so central to everything that you did. How did, and and first I think, can you explain what hot dog is? I'm really interested to hear what your take on is. Yeah, okay, so for those that don't, and and you either, you either know what hot dog is and it's one of the most iconic movies in your, in your life or you have no idea what it is. Um, uh, so it's, um, it's a Hollywood ski movie. So an, an official, you know, real, you know, full on Hollywood movie. And um, it's um, it's about it's it's about the World Freestyle Skiing Championships, and I would say that it, it's got the most amazing um, skiing and 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 acrobatic and technical um, way before it was called extreme extreme skiing, um, along with just you know kind of college raunchy hot tub humor. So it's like um, downhill racer meets Porky's, and. For skiers, um, it is their Rocky Horror Picture Show. I'd say just about any skier or snowboarder can quote every single line in the movie. And um, no winter is complete without getting together with your buddies over a few beers and, and you know, pulling it up online and, and watching it and repeating all the lines. So freestyle skiing, American like, like outsider, yeah, trying to take on the the established Europeans. So this is the classic skiing sort of setup, right? And exactly. Yeah, comes in in his truck, and there's a love interest and all this stuff and everything. And you know, I I, I haven't seen it in a while. I'm sure there's some hot tub scenes. There, there are probably oh, yeah. some things that you couldn't do today. Oh, you you couldn't make uh, probably half that movie today. Um, it's uh, for for parents with young kids. I would say um, get a copy and edit it because there's some neat stuff. There's um, the skiing is phenomenal. The skiing holds up today. Uh, it's just amazing. Some of the most amazing uh, uh, skiing stunts ever. Um, the the funny thing is though, as as they were shooting all this, we were all excited and everything, and. Um, when it came out that next winter, I knew the whole story and all the different scenes that were in there. And, and my folks said, oh, it's opening weekend. I was off somewhere and on the planet. And they said, you know, we're, we're gonna go see it. We're gonna take your, your, your 14 year old sister to see it. And I said, you know, mom and dad, 
maybe maybe I'll get a video and we can all watch it together. That'd be real fun. Figuring I could edit out, edit out, you know, quarter of the movie. And um, they uh, <laughs> apparently they watched the movie and, and for about the first half of the movie, there'd be scenes where they're, they're both on each side of my, my sister and they're, they're covering her eyes. And, and um, they said about halfway through, it got to the point where she's just watching it. Mom, dad, I've seen all this before. They're covering their eyes. <laughs> well it was it was it was definitely and i nice. mean it's it's ta- it, it's 80s humor it's tame but it's it's 80s humor so you know it's it's not pc <laughs> so you were a stunt double how did you get into how did you get cast or i mean cast or because you were cast as an extra first right and then you became um, a stunt yeah and I, I had that was a goal in life i mean my my um my first goal was to become a professional freestyle skier and, um, and follow that path. But along that path, I, um, and we could go way back into that, but we'll focus on hot dog. Um, along that path, I became a, um, a trampolinist and a springboard diver and uh, learned a bunch of gymnastics moves and decided I want to be a Hollywood stuntman. I mean, that, you know, you, you never have to grow up. You get paid to, you know, do the stupid stuff that normally you're, you know, you get busted for. <laughs> um, becoming a stuntman, like becoming a Hollywood actor, as you know, Chris, is an interesting thing. You cannot get a job in a Hollywood movie unless you've got your Screen Actors Guild card, but you can't get your Screen Actors Guild card unless you've got a job in a Hollywood movie. <laughs> there you go. So um, I had uh, I had been uh, doing ski shows in Europe that winter and and uh, missed a jump and cracked my shoulder and so I came home early. I was broke and kind of uh, a little bummed out and it's middle of March and where's home? Oh, I came home to the San Francisco Bay Area, um, uh, a little town called Hayward. And um, so I'm just kind of sitting there licking my wounds in mid March and a good friend of mine lived across the bay calls me up and he says hey I hear they're making this Hollywood movie at Squaw Valley and it's all about freestyle skiing and they're hiring the locals as extras and you know we might be able to talk our way into uh you know being stunt doubles I didn't have a nickel um he fortunately a guy named Paul Rosenberg an amazing guy he drove by my house picked me up um we called some more friends of ours hey do you have any couch space <laughs> you know it's 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 freestyle skiing it's it's skiing crashed on some great friends of ours couch and um the next day uh went into the uh the casting trailer at 6 a.m where they where they cast the extras for the day now this is back in the mid mid 80 uh, 1983 so i had a one piece uh, bright red bogner skin tight suit that i i i treasure that suit and um so i show up with you know there's like 100 people and they're going to only show cast so many for that those scenes and um the the casting director an amazing guy but if you would cast a hollywood casting director that was him he said like you you and Oh, your suit, that red just pops. Yes, you are in. <laughs> and so the next few days, I'm just kind of hanging out and, and you know, kind of work the scene, got to know him and, and got to know the stunt, uh, the stunt coordinators and um, was just always there and, uh, and started studying the characters. And I started telling the stunt coordinators, uh, well, first of all, you know, they saw me ski and everything. I, I got very lucky. The guy that was going to do the mogul skiing 
for Kendo, the Japanese guy, uh, he hurt his uh, he hurt his knee in a in a, a fall the previous day. So they they needed somebody at the last minute, and I just happened to be at the right place at the right time. So, boom, I, I made it in. You know, I'm I'm on the stunt team. So I, that was amazing. And then um, and then uh, when they were going to film the aerials, I went to the the director and I said, "Hey, who's who's jumping for?" Um, for Dan O'Callaghan, for David Naughton's character. And he's like, oh, we don't even have him cast. And I said, I know how he would jump. He's got a real loose kind of, you know, laid back style. That's, that's the way I jump. Um, and he believed me. And, <laughs> and, and so that's, that's how I talked my way in. And then, and then I was also um, um, one of the people at the end the, the the whole the whole movie is that the um kind of the the running theme through the movie is the europeans own all the television rights and so um corporate sponsorship kind of leans the, the this new kid the new young naive kid is better than the europeans but um the scores kind of lean in their favor for um you know corporate sponsorship stuff and so at the at the end where the European wins and he shouldn't have, they said, okay, we're going to settle this with a Chinese downhill, which essentially they used to have these apparently way back when, before insurance companies were invented, uh, they would get, you know, 100, 150 people. And in this movie, we got 100 people on the top of about a 20 foot cornice at the very top of Squaw Valley. When they said go, all of us are in the air at the same time. And um, the thing is, it wasn't like a nice powder landing like you see in a Warren Miller movie. It was real firm. So you immediately accelerated to crazy speeds. And at the bottom of this bowl, there was only space in between the trees for 40 skiers. So it, it got real, real interesting. So anyway, I, I was one of those hundred people jumping off the cornice as well. <laughs> Were you one of the 40 people who made it through the trees in the bottom? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I, would, I would like to say that I was one of the fastest, but about halfway through, um, I, you know, I did the mental math and I, I hit the brakes just for a moment. I went, yep, I got to find my slot here. <laughs> I'd sit, you know, I wasn't getting paid enough to be getting moved off into the trees. Fair enough. How long did... How long did the shooting last? Were you there for for a long time? Did, were you getting paid too? Um, well, that was a that was a neat thing. They um, first, I was getting hired every day as an extra, and um, so you, you're getting extra pay, which you know at the time that was great. I mean, it was more money than I was making during the summer as a landscaper, just as an extra. And um, and then when I got into the stunt double stuff, then the pay for me went way up. So. Um, I think I got there the third week of March and um, actually, I, I, let me take that back. First week of April and uh, pretty much hung out and we were working through it until um, I left May 4th. The um, interesting little side note, there's these beautiful deep powder scenes where they're skiing just bottomless, the ultimate deep powder. And you notice the whole mountain is untracked. It's three feet of the driest like Utah powder that is is more rare in california that was shot may 3rd um and uh interestingly enough that storm wasn't predicted and they were supposed to finish the movie by by the end of april but it was one of those great winters where it just kept snowing every other day and we'd get three feet of snow so it, the production took a long time so we had a wrap party uh the night of may 2nd 
and um, we figured it started to snow pretty hard. We figured there's no way we're skiing tomorrow. So, you know, this is the 80s. People got loose. <laughs> like people enjoyed themselves because we figured there's no way we're skiing tomorrow and um so we make it home uh make it to my buddy's house and uh 6 a.m the the evil sun comes piercing through the windows actually 5 30 and uh we realize oh we gotta be in the trailer at six for makeup <laughs> and most of the guys got the ski powder. I got to go up with the aerialists and spend all day shoveling three feet of snow to make the jump site and, do, and, and managed you know, just enough time to each do one jump, no practice jumps, no nothing. And, you know, it's like all or nothing. So yeah, I was like just enough light to get your one jump in. So this was almost a six week job then. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it was amazing. I made I made more in those six weeks having fun than I generally made um, in a whole summer of uh, of landscaping and you know building decks and and you know pouring concrete and stuff. Uh, so it um, and it, it enabled me to um, enabled me to take hang gliding lessons and purchase my first hang glider and <laughs> these things just kind of lead together. <laughs> more fun toys, more adventures. Well, it's funny that you got cast or that you were in this, that you got cast, that you were as stunt double in the movie, because it was a lot of what you were doing anyway, right? I mean, you said that you you wanted to be a professional freestyle oh, yeah. skier. When was, did that idea start of being well, a skier? Yeah, so it started, um, I was born and raised in, in Wisconsin, where we got plenty of snow and cold, but um, a, a big ski mountain is 300 feet. That's, you know, the vertical, don't need a lot of oxygen. Um, <laughs> and, um, and nobody in our family was a skier. Uh, at eight years old, my folks let me watch the, um, the 1968 Olympics from Grenoble, France. And I got to watch Jean-Claude Keeley win the downhill, the slalom and the giant slalom, gold medal in all three of them. And I just thought this, this guy was the coolest human on the planet. And I just said, I have to be a skier. My, I, that, that, that changed my life. And I had been into so many other things before that. I wanted to be a rock drummer. I had a drum set. You know, I was into oceanography. I just, you know, I was like a leaf in the wind. I saw that and I just said, I want to do that. And I begged and pleaded. And I finally wore my folks down over, you know, that the rest of that winter and, and, the, and the next summer to uh, buying me a pair of skis that, that I got. My pair of skis were kind of like the kid's BB gun in um, uh, that movie. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the great movie, the, the Christmas story, a Christmas story. You know, all I want is a pair of these red skis with a binding that does this and that. And, and sure enough, we opened up all our presents Christmas day. I'm like, hey, did you get everything you want? Yeah, yeah, kind of. And my dad says, well, will you get my jacket out of the closet? Dad, you're in your bathrobe. It's freezing out. <laughs> Robert, like, oh man, he's mad. <laughs> instead of bob <laughs> okay and i open up the closet and there's those gleaming red skis and that was it i um you know i i just took to it like a duck to water and and just loved it and um did you take then, lessons or did um you yeah i took lessons and and um it, and 
quite frankly, for as, as any folks that have kids know, it's a pretty good deal when you get these ski clubs and you can drop your kids off in the early morning at the bus and they don't bring them back until late in the evening. So you got the day to yourself and the kids are semi-supervised and you take lessons and, you know, you got the mountain to yourself. And so skied in Wisconsin for a couple of years, took lessons and just kind of, you know, kind of figured it out on my own. And then um, the family moved out to California in 72. And yeah, I'm a little kid. Do they even have snow in California? I, you know, I didn't know Squaw Valley was in California. <laughs> so we hit the Bay Area and then um, joined a ski club where you get up at four in the morning and you're on the bus for four and a half hours to get there. And I remember the first time getting to um, actually Alpine Meadows right next to Squaw Valley and, and looking up and just I was I was so blown away. Um, I mean, it was like it was like I'd arrived at Mecca. <laughs> this and religious that, experience, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that was also um, when uh, hot dog skiing was really making the big time. And I started seeing that in um, Dick, Mary, Dick Barrymore and Warren Miller movies and in ski magazines. And these guys were getting the huge crowds. And Jean-Claude Keeley actually had kind of that hot dog style, that very loose kind of cat-like style, not their traditional, you know, really rigid. And I just said, hot dog skiing, man, that's it. Got to become that. That's I got to I begged my parents. They sent me to a freestyle airborne Eddie's freestyle ski camp where it's a, a two week camp um, after the spring uh, the schools over the spring you go to this two-week ski camp um you know on a kind of like a glacier up in crystal mountain and the first year i went you know all my heroes are my coaches and i just decided this is what i'm going to do with my life i'm going to become the world freestyle champion i'm going to focus on this and and uh learn that um in order to do it safely you need to learn gymnastics and springboard diving and trampoline and so you know, got into that in high school. And quick side note on that. There, this is real funny. I got to my high school as a freshman. There was no men's gymnastics team. So everybody, all the jocks are signing up over at the guys thing in the gym. And I kind of timidly go over to the girls side of the gym and I sign up for gymnastics and all the guys are making fun of me. Ugh. But uh, ironically, about halfway through the first year, these guys are saying, wait a minute. I'm sitting there, you know, lifting weights with these smelly, ugly guys and Bob's over there and he's spotting these really beautiful women in their Lycra suits and everything. This is, something's not right here. <laughs> You're smarter than you looked. That's great. Uh, yeah, it worked out okay. Freestyle skiing though, too, really was freestyle skiing, wasn't it? I mean, a lot of it, especially the early then, days, yeah, making yeah. up jumps as you as you go or like what are you going to do and that was in the movie too right but, yeah know. absolutely and, and interesting enough for, for those that, that have seen the movie a lot or when you see it um uh, the the writer mike marvin um everything in that movie is based on fact everything in that movie happened it just didn't all happen to one person in one weekend <laughs> But, uh, you know, like I say, those were the, those were uh, simpler kind of more innocent times and 
uh, but yeah, it, it, it was funny though. And, and, uh, and, and David Naughton has a lot to do with uh, really punching up that script on, on a lot of the comedy, which is fun. So yeah, that was, it was, a, it was just an amazing time. What were the events when you first started freestyle skiing? Um, well, when I, uh, by the time I got into it, they had broken it down. Uh, the early events were just kind of, you know, go in a big mogul field and go crazy. And maybe they'd build a couple big jumps in the middle. <laughs> um, so when I got into it, um, it was, there was three events. There was, uh, there was ballet, which is no longer, but essentially it's, it's like figure skating on skis to music choreographed with axles and somersaults over your poles. Um, and then there's, there's moguls, which you see now in the Olympics, although back in the day, um, as I like to say, it was it was held on a, on on a wild moguls. They weren't farm raised moguls, <laughs> um, which because uh, now it's all machine. Yeah, yeah, they're exactly the same, perfectly spaced apart, and um, and, and then aerial acrobatics. Where um, in the early days, it was. Um, you know, people are just kind of figuring stuff out. And, and tragically, there were some injuries, some, some serious uh, paralyzing injuries in the, in the earlier 70s. And so when I got into it, I, I had a really healthy amount of fear. Um, my mom was a nurse. My dad was a hospital administrator. So I, and, and I was taking, uh, you know, I was actually taking and also coaching, helping coach gymnastics. So I knew what spinal cord injuries were. And so I, I had a healthy amount of fear. Um, I was not one of those, oh, dude, you know, we're going for it. I, I trained like crazy to just, you know, way, way, I would do something a thousand times on a springboard before I'd ever try it on snow. And I was always extra careful in everything. Um, and also aware of the risks. Um, as a matter of fact, I, um, doing stuff on snow, I had, uh, so much concern that, it's, it's hard to make yourself go into an eight foot jump at 40 miles an hour when the only thing you can see is three miles away. Like everything in your brain is pretty much saying, stop, this is a bad idea. <laughs> because those jumps are pretty much vertical. Yeah. You're yeah. thrown into a backflip when you go off of those aerial yeah, jumps. Yeah, they're, they're, they're made to, to, to make you do whatever maneuver you were going to do. So, um, I was fortunate that I, I was able to find and work with a, a brilliant sports psychologist who um, we did a lot of things, uh, relaxation and hypnosis. And, um, uh, and I, I was also super, super nervous competing. I would just fall apart in the starting gate. I could barely even stand up. And, um, and she would do visualization, all, all the tech, all the, the, the sports therapy techniques. She, she got so good that I would, drop into an in-run and I trained. So I, I was good at this stuff. I was dialed in, but as soon as I would start down the in-run, I would just drop into this Zen state of just total confidence and calm. And um, when I was in the starting gate, I got so good that the, the bigger the competition and the, the, the worse the odds were against me, um, I just, the stronger and more invincible I felt, uh, which, I mean, you know, from all your competitive years, when you get to a certain level, it's, it's mental because you could take the top 20 people and anybody's capable of winning. It's uh, it's that mental edge at that point. Um, and uh, it, tragically that, that is how I broke my back though. I mean, just to flash forward, um, I was uh, kind of jumping around here, but uh, I was um, 
another culmination of my career was after Hot Dog, um, I got hired to be on the uh, the Volvo ski team, which is um, it's the another ultimate job. It was a um, uh, a promotional vehicle for Volvo cars. But this and, is like this is Hot Dog, right? I mean, this yeah. is you were doing freestyle. You're traveling to all of these places. Like, well, what what was your job? How did this work? Because you call it a job. I yeah. think people might be a little <laughs> suspicious when you when you actually describe what your job was. Yeah, and I'm kind of jumping around, so let me know if I'm messing you up here. <laughs> oh no, we're all good. We're all good. We'll have fun. I'm, I'm caffeinated. <laughs> <laughs> You're a freestyler. You're all over the place. That, that, that's good. right. Well, um, yeah, we kind of kind of get the elephant out of the room though, as far as my injury, um, and then we can maybe back up on some stuff. But um, okay. so my. I uh, also, to kind of support my ski habit, I'm a show off. And um, one of the things that I love doing was I always wanted to be in ski shows. So in the, if people remember in the late seventies and the eighties, there was these, in the fall, there was these ski shows that would travel to um, kind of indoor arenas, like, uh, you know, basketball arenas or, or whatever and um they would have all the different ski companies there and and you could you'd pay and you go in and see the cool stuff and then in one end of the arena they would have these shows where there was a um called a ski deck it's a, it's this big uh, tilted platform with a carpet that revolves uphill and you 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 go down this carpet and you can ski back and forth on this carpet and stay in one place and then next to that they had a, a two two-story high scaffolding with a ski jump built um, with the top of it was about the top of it was like I don't know 25 feet and then the top of the jump was about 10 feet off the off the ground and then they had either an airbag or or a pad that you would go off and do like a double somersault and you know land and ski away so again I I managed to kind of talk my way into becoming a performer in those ski shows and and um, and, and learned how to do that well, the, and this was like AstroTurf kind of thing, like watered down AstroTurf. Yeah, yeah, it, 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 it exactly. It looks, uh, it's like a very stiff AstroTurf that's, for lack of a better term, made out of a, like a nylon uh, surface. And um, like they, they actually, places in, um, places in England, they have whole, and, and other parts of the world, they have whole ski slopes made out of these things. In fact, I'm kind of dating myself because you don't see them too much anymore, but Every once in a while, you'll see on the on the exit or the entrance of a chairlift, there are these kind of octagonal green, uh, like looks like stiff grass that you slide across to get on the lift. It's that kind of stuff. It's just solid. Um, so, yeah, I was that was my job in the fall was traveling up and down the West Coast, um, you know, setting up those ski jumps and then doing three shows a day choreographed to music. It's like the carnival. I mean, you were yep. effectively like the carnival, except yeah. nobody else could ride the rides. Yeah, hundred percent. And then the year that I did hot dog, I had met a guy in Switzerland that was doing essentially a circus on skis on snow in Switzerland. And I talked my way over there and booked a ticket, landed in Switzerland. And um, funny little side note: landed in Switzerland after flying for a day and a half and. Um, 23 years old the idea that they only spoke german in switzerland and 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 not english at all never occurred to me when i didn't finish german in high school and uh i remember that first 
year was I was the only guy that really spoke much English and everybody else spoke a little bit of broken English on the team, but um, yeah, did, did ski shows there. But so the ultimate ski show in the world is the Volvo ski show. And um, it was a, it was when Volvo was trying to break away from kind of the, the seventies, they had an image as a very safe kind of car for college professors that smoked a pipe. And so they were making a more sporty and they wanted to break into the sports car market. And a brilliant guy named Phil Sifferman approached Volvo and he says, hey, I have a direct marketing campaign that is going to go right to people that like to spend time in snow. You got a great car built in Sweden. They've got a lot of money. They in their image, they're 20 years old, but in their they're in their 50s and they have the kind of money that a, that a, a, a 50 year old professional has and they'll. Oh, tell us some more. It's like, I'm going to have this like a Marlboro image team of skiers and they're going to be dressed, looking super cool, all the best stuff and get four Volvo cars, your top cars with like all full on winter racing stuff on it and, and the logo. And we're going to go to the finest ski resorts all over the world and spend a week at each resort. And my job from December, you know, through April was to, you know, the first half was in Europe, go to one resort, you land there, we're in first class hotels and wake up in the morning. And you now we did have to help build the ski jump site. But then the rest of the day, we were skiing with local journalists and celebrities and, and showing off for people. And then the next part of our job at night was we were supposed to, we were, we had to show up at a local pub or, you know, I'm dating myself the the, the kind of the video dance club era that you had all over the place, um, we would have our own table and an open bar for the team and, and everybody knew who we were. And in Europe, skiing is a big deal. And um, it's the first time in my life I ever had some game. <laughs> so this is, this is a scam and you've gone to heaven effectively. I, I, um, I said, I wanna do this, uh, you know, I, every day, and I, the other guys on the team were, were former world champions. And these were all my heroes. So the first time, the first day I got there, I'm, I'm meeting, you know, I like, like meeting like the, you know, Tom Brady or something. I'm meeting my heroes and, and I'm on their team. And then they say, well, here's your room. Here's all your stuff. And there's like all the top of the line stuff from all these different companies. And, and, and I'm just, you know, I can't believe this. And, these guys have been on the team for a few years, so they're kind of used to this. And I would wake up every morning at like six, just like a little kid on Christmas morning. And a couple of times throughout the day, I'd look at these guys and I'd just say, do you believe that we get paid to do this? This is not normal. This is a, this is amazing. And they, they kind of chuckle at, you know, like, eh, the, you know, the, the rookie American, you know, man, he's easily amused, isn't he? <laughs> but, little puppy. Yeah. But on the other hand, um, they started to appreciate it because, you know, no matter how good things get for you, you can forget how great things are. And so I think I was a little bit of a, you know, I, I like to think I was a little bit of a, no, this is not normal. This is, you know, this is amazing. Nobody gets to do this. <laughs> and then um, anyway, the culmination of the week was the Volvo ski show, which was an hour long ski show. Um, we had, we would build this arena of snow with giant ski jumps and a landing hill and a high speed lift. And, and where was, are you? 
Um, so this would be, we would be mostly in Europe. So like, uh, I don't know, like uh, Verbier or, or um, uh, St. Anton or something like that. Um, you know, all the major ski towns. Okay. And so Friday night, we'd be up on, the, on, a, on a hill where you could walk to. So all the people from town would show up. And we had this hour long show that was under the lights, choreographed to music. We had a high speed, like 30 mile an hour, high speed rope tow that would zing us back up to the top. And we did everything from um, uh, choreographed, uh, you know, five, six guys holding hands, flying through the air and double, triple twisting somersaults and, and all that stuff and ballet and comedy routines uh, with fireworks. And, and we'd have 10,000 people show up to see a, a ski show and i you know it's i, I was I, I never got over that. i said you know we are rock stars are you kidding me i i never got over it and and then after the show's over you know first thing you want is a beer so you go into a bar and you're still in your volvo suit and and it just everybody stops and turns around <laughs> You are somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the Steve Martin thing. The new phone books are in. I'm somebody. Um, but yeah, it was, it was the greatest, uh, it, well, not the greatest time of my life. One of the many great times of my life. Uh, and I was always very, very careful on that show. And then um, we had got to uh, Canada and we had this huge jump built uh, outside of Montreal and, and the weather was changing there. And I had tested the jump the day before. Anyways, I was always super, super, super careful. And um, I was just before the show, everybody does one jump just to figure out uh, uh, you set a little stake in the ground. Like if I start at this stake and don't take any moves, I'm going to have the perfect speed for this maneuver. So I, I wanted to do that. And the conditions were changing. And and a couple of friends of mine on the team said, you know, wait, it's getting a little iffy. And I wanted to grab dinner before the show. I go, no, no, I just want to set my speed stake. And it was the one time I let my guard down. And um, I did like a little speed check, but not enough. And I, and I came into the jump too fast. And it's my own fault. I just, I didn't do, you know, due diligence. I, I didn't do my due diligence. And I went too fast um, and too high and too far. And so instead of doing a giant, like 100 foot somersault, I went way farther and and over rotated and, and landed on my shoulders um, where it started to flatten out. So instead of like a kind of a glancing blow, it was a whack. And at the last second, I threw my arms over my head because I didn't want to break my neck, which may have worked. And instead, I had a, a major fracture dislocation of um, T11 and 12 and busted a bunch of ribs and nasty stuff. So, yeah. So you went from living this dream to all of a sudden your life changed super, super quickly. What, what happened there? Where, where were you when you were in Montreal? You said when, when the accident. Yeah. Happened? Yeah. We were, we were two out, two hours outside of Montreal and um, the reader's digest version is uh, as you know, Chris, even, even if you're kind of hurt, when you take a bad crash, your male, your ego says, I'm fine. You know, the, it's like the Monty Python night. It's just a flesh wound. You're, you're, you always say I'm fine. Um, and I'm, I'm lying there. Couldn't have been more perfect. I was flat on my back. You know, nothing moved weird or anything. Um, 
but I immediately just screamed, you know, I'm in trouble. And um, what had happened essentially was the spinal cord was intact, but uh, it had been slammed real hard. So um, there was, you know, all kinds of bruising and then all the ribs were broken. And so my, my perception, what I was feeling was um, somebody had torn all my internal organs apart and thrown a shovel full of hot coals in there and it wouldn't go out. Um, like I, I, you know, I'd broken ribs before I'd broken a shoulder. When I was a little kid, I got hit by a car, broke a hip. That kind of hurt. This was like a thousand times worse. I didn't think it was possible to, uh, to, uh, absorb that much pain. And, and I didn't know what was wrong. I, I thought, I thought internal organs, I thought I was going to bleed out any second. Um, I mean, I just, uh, and, and I kept almost losing consciousness and I just, I willed myself not to, cause I, I was sure, I, I was really sure this was it. And, and How I mean, old were you? Um, I was 24, just about to turn 25. And 24. Okay. yeah. And I mean, I even, I even kind of did the, you know, going part way down the tunnel and, and um, you know, and, uh, and I was like, Hey, I don't believe in this, but whoa, you know? And, 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 and when I did that, like all the pain started going away. Um, but then, I don't know what to make of this, if it's real or not, but in my perception, like, Hey, wherever you're going to go is fine. This is great. No pain. Doesn't matter. Oh, back up a little bit. So I'm there for about five minutes. The ski patrol's there. They're, they're attending to me my friends are there and it's so much pain. All of a sudden from the level of my injury down, it felt like a, a in about 10 seconds, a dimmer switch turned off the feeling. Really? You and felt it like this? I, I felt it fade away over 10 or 20 seconds. And I, I just said, you know, I said, guys, it, it's just gone from bad to worse. I'm paralyzed. And, you know, and just, I'm just, and I'm, I'm doing all this stuff. Like I'm reporting when I last ate and all this stuff, you know, in case they have to do surgery, I'm just kind of doing all the mental coaching stuff that I'd learned first aid over the years. But um, yeah, so I, all this pain, I kind of went down that, I, Again, I, who knows what it is, but as I'm going down this tunnel, there was this sensation of everything's going to be fine and, you know, like no pain, just, just let go. And, you know, in my mind, uh, I'm thinking, whoa, you know, all of a sudden, like, this is death. This is cool. I get to find out what everybody on the planet wants. Like, this is awesome. And, and I, I mean, this was all gestalt. There was suddenly this awareness of, the thing is you don't get to go back and tell them yeah and i was like oh you know that i mean this is all happening who knows was it happening over minutes or or trillions of a second i don't know and and then i just started flashing on crap there's a lot of stuff i wanted to do in my life and i haven't done it and and i kind of got twitched and and then i started thinking about you know family and friends and i started thinking I know wherever I'm going in my perception, I'm going to be fine, but I can't tell them. And so, you know, I just, in my mind, I reversed that course and suddenly I'm, a, I'm back in my body and in more pain than, than was, I didn't think I could last second to second. Um, and, and unfortunately it was foggy. They couldn't life flight me to the hospital where who knows, maybe they could have decompressed the injury right away. Instead, they, I had a two hour bumpy ambulance ride to the hospital and, and, um, the, uh, 
took all the x-rays and the doctor comes in and tells me, you know, what's going on. You got any questions? And I see I have one. So I know I'm paralyzed. What are the odds that, you know, you guys can do something about this and I'm going to walk again. And man, I'd hate to be a doctor. And he just said, very remote. I, I think back on that. What a, what a horrible thing to have to answer anybody, but, but what a perfect way to say it. Like he didn't close the door. You know, I mean, I just, I, I think about that. Like it, <laughs> any doctors listening. Right. Because, <laughs> like, and, well, so what do you mean by that? That, that what, what did it do for you that he didn't close the door? I got it that I wasn't going to walk again, but there was, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't like totally slam the door in my face right then and there. Like he said it very dire, very remote, which is actually hundred percent true. Well, what did walking mean for you? Uh, walking meant for me at the time, hundred percent recovery, <laughs> like just being fine. I had no idea about all the other stuff about spinal cord injury. Right. And um, so, so then um, I, I was so unstable, they couldn't even do surgery for about a week. And then they, they put Harrington rods in my back. And then I pretty much stayed on my back in Canada for a month until I was stable enough to fly home and then did rehab at uh, Santa Clara Valley Medical Center in San Jose. Shout out to them because it was the old days where you got to stay in rehab till you learned all the things you needed to learn to stay healthy and not go back there. Um, Versus like a couple of weeks now. I yeah, mean, I, I, I don't know how you survive in a 21 day rehab. Um, you know, thank goodness for all the spinal cord injury support groups and your podcast and everything. Um, you know, uh, so, um, I mean, I hated being in rehab, but it gave me all the tools to know how to take care of myself. And then, uh, you know, just, you know, flash forward from there. Now I've got all my job skills are gone. Uh, the thing I love more than anything on the planet skiing is gone. Uh, because they didn't have mono skis then. And, um, but uh, everything's relative. Uh, when he, when he said, um, you know, the odds of, of very remote, one of the things that went through my mind is, um, oh, but I'm going to live. Because I really didn't think I was going to live. And so um, being paralyzed, again, you know, <laughs> uh everything's relative and so um it it really sucked and i just said and, and oh i know before i told him that i said tell me the truth don't sugarcoat it i want to know um and so uh and i just and i just kind of went oh shit uh, why did you want to know what why did you have to know um i just i'm uh my background's german so we're just very you know we just want to know you know, we just want to know all the facts and, and, and um, you know, that's just, I, I've also, I've always just loved knowledge. So um, I, I didn't want to be wondering and hoping and clinging to fairy tales. I wanted to know what's going on. So um, what were you going to do after this? I mean, you, you have, you have this little bit of hope, you know, yeah. you're, you're like, okay, I'm alive. Yeah. What are you going to do? You're 24 years old. You're on your own. Yeah. And, and on my own. And um, well, uh, fortunately, um, my, uh, my dad flew up, like, I, I was so out of it. And so morphined up the next week uh, seemed to last like, there was seconds, I remember. Um, oh, the other thing is, um, my, the doctor said, you're in bad shape, we got to call your folks. And I, um, I thought, 
oh my God, you know, how can you do this to your parents? You know, have them get this phone call. You, you, your child's clinging to life. And I said, I'm only going to give you the number if you agree to hold the receiver up to my, my ear. Because uh, I figure at least if they're talking to me, you know, you soften the blow. And, and so my dad gets on the phone and like, hey, how's it going? You know, how's the tour? And I'm like, oh, geez, I'm about to destroy his world. <laughs> I, oh, it's just, yeah, I, I still get teared up. And, um, but I just, you know, I, I told him I've been in a really, really bad accident. And I'm hurt really bad and I'm in the hospital and, um, and, and I could, and my dad's a tough guy, you know, military and everything. And I could see he's really you know, having trouble. And I said, dad, look, I'm, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm going to hang on. I just wanted you to hear my voice and I'm going to turn this over to the doctors. And, and, and at that point I felt I could let go. And I don't remember, I then uh, um, 24 hours later, he arrived in Montreal. For me, it was about 10 seconds and because you're I in mean, and out yeah you're yeah i mean a lot of us time. have gone through that i mean the next week the, the entire next week was like you know a second here a second there and then okay we're going to put you under for surgery and you know okay surgery's done and, but um so the real the real big stuff started getting getting to rehab and um interestingly enough the the one thing that really saved me um was thank goodness uh, the active lightweight sports chairs had entered the market. Uh, you know the quickies back then, and the quadras, and all the stuff now. And you know, for for those of us that go way back, uh, you know, eight years earlier, you spent the rest of your life in a hospital type chair, fifty pounds stainless steel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I figured, okay, I'm, I'm going to focus on getting out of the hospital. But um, I mean, I just felt so disabled and. The first day I went into the rehab gym, um, they had a red quickie wheelchair, you know, nice racing bicycle tires and a red quadra. Uh, this is 1985. So the two, the two active lightweight chairs were quickie and quadra. And they had two of those in the gym. And I saw those and I went, okay, this is cool. I, the image I got on that, like, this is sporty. This is not disabled. This is cool. And it, it, it enabled me to, you know, like, okay, I'm, I can be that guy. And um, so then I just, you know, I blasted through rehab, like, what do I have to learn and accomplish to get out of here? I just, I, I approached it like I was training for World Cup and, um, and then got out and, and I got to say, I, I was a model patient. I, um, I had no idea what I was going to do, but fortunately, um, they had really good counselors there and they hooked me up with somebody with folk rehab and they said, look, what do you want to do with your life? Um, and I would have never in a million years gone to college that terrified me. I, I quit high school with a DNF record in the beginning of my junior year to go on the ski tour. Um, right. I took the GED, but you know, I mean, I just, so and, and the idea of college was terrifying because I was barely, you know, had, I couldn't even do long division um, and, you know, remedial English, the whole deal. But um, I said, okay, I'll try college. And, and I jumped into it. And uh, the first day of the, on campus there to me was probably scarier than, way scarier than doing a double twisting, double somersault. I mean, you know, scarier than, um, but, uh, 
the big picture is I, I dug in, I had amazing instructors. I, I brought my, um, I was an avid reader, so that helped out, um, voracious reader. But um, it, it was the most, one of the most amazing experiences and life enhancing experiences of, you know, of my life. And uh, ended up getting into broadcast and electronic communication with a, an emphasis on video production. Um, so, and got my BA with, with honors, you know, who would I ever thought? <laughs> you start over. Um, right. Yeah, but, I guess. But the, the hard okay. part, like how did the fear get through the fear, get through that difficulty of like, this is not who I am. How could you, how could you become that person when, when that really wasn't who you were? Yeah, um, I, uh, I just figured uh, the, the big thing for me was in my perception facing down death. And there was that, I, it never left me that, that gestalt thing of, you were gonna accomplish all these things in your life and you're gonna leave now? Hey, no, you know, and, and I, you know, there was just this gestalt thing of everything that I'd planned to do really you're gonna leave that and and so that that never left me that um man I, I i've gone through the i've gone through the worst thing ever i'm just gonna i'm just gonna go you know pedal to the metal um uh, another thing this is this is actually a little a little twisted but um it was the same year lethal weapon came out okay and mel gibson's character in lethal weapon plays this guy that he's recently lost his wife and he's a He's a police undercover detective or a cop and, and, and he's, he, he's suicidal and he doesn't care if he lives or dies. So he's doing this extreme police work, like kind of hoping he's going to get killed, not really trying to get killed, but not really caring. And so in a way, um, I was so torn up on the one side that on the one side, it was so bad that it gave me the freedom to try anything. Cause like, okay, this is about as bad as it gets, you know, like, what's going to be worse? Embarrassment? <laughs> you know, I'm paralyzed. I almost died. You know, embarrassment is nothing. Uh, you know, sadly, that started ramping up later in life and got normal again. But well, that enabled... was my question, too, is you're saying that it's like, can, can you maintain, can you, can you dip back into that sentiment, that belief of like, I, I don't care. I'm going to do everything. I've, I've almost died. So I am, I am able to, I am able to go back to that. Well, and it takes a lot of effort. Um, in fact, when I was in, uh, when I was in rehab, I was, I was always pretty happy during the day. Like I was the AJ squared away guy, but then a friend would call and I'd break into tears. And so I knew, yeah, I'm, this is not normal. You know, this is some PTSD stuff. Didn't know what that was, but so I sought, the. Uh, and our family always figured if you seek the help of a therapist, you're okay. It's if you try and tough it out on your own, then you got problems. So I sought the help of the therapist and she was very wise. And, and um, one of the things she said is, you know, hey, can you get next through the next hour? You know, can you get through the next day? And um, I said, yeah. And, and she's like, don't worry about the rest of your life. You know, just, yeah. she gave me permission to take things in little chunks um, but, but I, I, I do go back to that well occasionally because I'm, you know, I am naturally very shy. I also, I have a, I have a real serious, um, I have a real serious fear bumper. 
It's just that the stuff I want to do that's fun, um, I would rather, my greatest fear ever, and I used to have this recurring nightmare when I was about nine or 10 years old, that I was 70 and had led a very nice, safe life, but no adventure, and I was too old to do them. And I don't know where that came from, but it terrified me. It, it, I was way more scared of not having a, a full, rich life of doing all that cool stuff you see on TV. <laughs> and so I, you know, I'm, I'm way out of my comfort zone when I try this stuff. But um, the, uh, you know, I, I, there's stuff I won't do because I deem it too dangerous. And, um, but, you know, I, I want to have a full life. And so, you know, I've been in some hairy situations. And I'm, okay, you know what? this is an amazing experience. And if I live through it, it's going to be a cool story. <laughs> so this is when you're really alive. Yeah. When you're doing this stuff that's crazy. And the motivation is that you don't want to be, I mean, not that 70 is on your deathbed, but when you're younger, you were probably thinking that 70, 10, 70 is ancient. Yeah. 70 is seeming real young now. <laughs> As it gets closer and closer. Exactly. Yeah. But you didn't want to look back on that and say, I didn't want to miss my life. I mean, this is, this yeah. is the road. This is, you know, yeah. all, all these people, you know, don't want to go through life having never lived or whatever, you know, I'm, I'm misquoting them, obviously, but it did, did journalism, did that, was that a part of it? Was, was journalism part of figuring out how to, how to tell the story, how to, how to really live life? What, what, what attract, yeah. attracted you to journalism? But yeah. well, that was kind of an accident. Um, I, um, about you know, a few years after I was injured, I stumbled across this really cool, edgy magazine. At the time, it was called Spinal Network, and and it's since changed to now we know it as New Mobility Magazine. And and it was real, it was real cutting edge. And I used to read that every single month. Actually, it was quarterly. And I noticed that the uh, what made it cutting edge. Um, it was kind of um, a cutting edge, meaning um, some of the other magazines were, you know, like, oh, you know, this is inspiration and, and that kind of stuff. And, and that's good, but, um, not, you know, not uh, just a little tiny bit of it. This was more like, um, hey, we're going to tell you the good, the bad, and the ugly about spinal cord injury. Like, we're going to tell you the cool stuff. We're also going to tell you the edgy stuff. You know, we're going to talk about sex and dating. Uh, you know, we're going to talk about... Uh, you know, uh, guys in wheelchairs in prison. We're going to talk about life, not um, you know. Here's this nice little happy life. You happy people in wheelchairs and that, not that's, the sugar-coated. Yeah, life. yeah. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, and, and so I, um, I was doing video production at the time, and also getting into wheelchair sales. I'm, I'm all over the board, and um, I, uh, I went to uh, one of these ability shows. Anyway, I, I noticed that the editor was a guy named Barry Corbett. Now, growing up, the ski films that I used to watch were made by this guy, Barry Corbett. He made the most iconic, iconic ski films ever. And he also was uh, a photographer and one of the lead climbers on uh, the 1963 American Everest expedition and stuff. And, but, but this guy is the editor of the magazine and he's a wheelchair. I can't be the same guy. And, and so I'm at this trade show and um, as skiers are wont to do, we have a tendency to be able to, you know, kind of talk our way in and out of whatever we want to get into. Because you ever, yeah. never have enough money to actually do what you're Because we're always broke. <laughs> so I, um, I wrangled myself an invite to uh, a dinner with the magazine. 
And at dinner, after the second drink, I, I asked this guy, Barry Corbett, I said, you by chance aren't the same guy, Barry Corbett, that made, you know, the Mobius flip and the magic skis and all this stuff. And he kind of like, oh, yeah. And I just and it's like Wayne's world. Oh, my goodness. I'm not worthy. I said, your ski films changed my life. And, and in a classic fashion, he says, oh, um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just very, you know, he just had a good sense of humor. And so I, I, I got way into peer counseling and I started meeting all these amazing people through peer counseling. And one of the first mind boggling people I met was Danny Chandler, who was the, um, he was the world motocross champion until uh, he broke his neck and became a, a C uh, five, six complete quad. Uh, and then he had figured out how to modify an off-road race car and um, a, uh, a jet ski in order to um, ride. And so he had an amazing story. And so I, I just kind of figured, wow, I love telling stories. That's why I got into video production. But at the time, video production was so expensive. The cameras were a fortune. It cost $300 an hour to make one or two um, edits, one or two edits. Think about that now when you can do, um, you know, the stuff you can do on your iPhone uh, used to cost like $30,000 for a 28 minute deal um, <laughs> and take, you know, months. Uh, so anyways, I figured, all right, videos a way for me to travel around, but I need a whole team of people and, and all this stuff. And I had done that. Well, gee, all I need is a camera. I'd learn photography and, and, you know, learn how to take notes and I could probably tell a story. So I pitched this story to Barry and he says, Hey, give it a shot, send it in. I'll tell you if I can use it or not. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, he said, give me 2000 words. So I went up for two days with tapes and tapes and tapes. And I interviewed this guy and, and I, and I transcribed it. And I ended up, I ended up getting my story from like 20,000 words down to 6,000. And that was as far as I could cut it. And I sent it to him and poor Barry, but he sends me back this this work of art at 2000 words and i just wow i look like a genius and and he was very nice that was back in the day when you you would put something on a disc and fedex it to your editor and and, <laughs> and he and you'd call him on the phone and and he said now that we know that you know how to tell a story tell me more ideas and i will help um i'll help you um you know get closer and closer to getting me something that i don't have to touch and he was just like, he was my guru and mentor in that. And, um, and I found that, that journalism was a way for me to um, get paid or at least be able to write off all these incredible adventures all around the planet and, you know, make, make pennies on the dollar and, and starve subsistence, but live the coolest life ever. Um, you know, I mean, basically I was doing the adventures that millionaires do. It's just that I wasn't paying for them. I was getting paid to cover them. Was that a conscious thought for you? That 100%, that's what you wanted to 100%. do? Two things I love are doing crazy adventures and almost even more telling stories about it later. <laughs> I love to hold court. <laughs> it's a chicken and the egg uh question right it, yeah you, you do the adventure so you can tell the story or do you tell the story about the adventure you know which 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 is the most motivating part of it yeah so, so that was that in 96 you started with new mobility yeah. did, when you yeah. wrote that first story did you think that was it? Fired? 
Um, well, I've always been freelance. Um, and to this day, I'm their senior correspondent, but I, I really like working as a freelancer because I can work as hard or as little as I want. Um, you know, if, if I want to take some time off and just do a private adventure or, you know, uh, when I was raising my daughter and everything, you know, I was doing a little bit less writing. And, and so um, I, I always enjoyed the, the day gig. I mean, it's, it's way tougher as far as uh, paying rent. But again, you know, I, I can make top ramen stretch a long way. So. <laughs> wow. Now, so with, with that, when you look back now, it's because you're approaching 61, right? You're 60. Yeah, yeah. April 11th, 61st birthday. So, so 60, 61, which, you know, is kind of, you start. start oh, believe me, it's hitting me. <laughs> start hitting those steps and you start getting closer and closer to 70 as yeah. you as you look back on it as you look back on your life and you know you signed up for all these adventures yeah what's do you look back and say yeah i did what i set out to do yes I, or you're I, still doing it yeah well i am i'm so grateful that i did that and, and again it's a choice um you know, my, here's a juxtaposition. My dad was a pilot in Korea and um, he has stories like just insane pilot stories. And, and then, um, and then he went to school and he got his degree in hospital administration. And um, after we were born, uh, it wasn't until I was seven or eight that, you know, started hearing all his, his flight stories and, and he stayed in the air force reserve for the rest of his life, but in administration, not as a, as a pilot. And he could have been a, pilot for the airlines or a test pilot. I said, dad, I don't get it. You know, you drive a station wagon at 55 miles an hour. I don't understand. I can't, you know, you were this pilot all over the world. And he said, I wanted a wife and kids and a pilot is not home that much. I wanted to be there a present dad. And that's what I wanted. And he said, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I, I said, I'm so glad I had my earlier adventures. But um, this is this is the most, you know, your mom and, you know, and your kids is the most rewarding thing ever. And um, you balance the two, though. You had this yeah, life of adventure, yeah. but then you had your daughter, right? Yeah. At age 41, um, my daughter came into my life, um, Sarah Ann. Hey, Sarah. And, and um, interestingly enough, though, I didn't get what he meant until the first time I held her in my arms. <laughs> And it, I just like, whoa. Now, and I will say the first six months of no sleep, um, they say you just fall madly in love with your, your child the first time. The six months, it was kind of a love-hate sort of thing. Like, okay, I got to keep them alive. But <laughs> once they start sleeping through the night, the night. What was that first feeling when, when you first held her in your arms? What was... What was that feeling? Well, a condensed version is um, she was, uh, we, we, uh, we managed to adopt, uh, my wife and I managed to adopt her through foster care. So we got her at one month old and it was a matter, it was a combination of excitement and complete terror. Um, and I mean this because I know like um, this entire person's life and well-being depends on my taking care of her and setting an example. And, you know, I mean, it was exciting, but it was terrifying. And, um, and I, and, uh, 
you had to do more than most people though, right? You had to do three months of, of classwork effectively to be foster parents, didn't you? So, yeah, so most so people don't, don't have that three month buildup to all of a sudden you have a child and yeah, you still so, didn't feel prepared is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the foster care classes really helped prepare us to become children, parents, but still, um, and, and, and I'll tell you, the, I, I've told a lot of new parents this, that the idea that you, um, you, you hold your child for the first time and it's just, uh, you know, the angels are singing and there's flowers falling and there's a ray of light on you. For some people, 100% that happens, but I tell people, I said, I said you know, a lot of people, um, it's not uncommon to feel zero connection and feel horrendous guilt about that and i and i said don't worry about it because you know this is a new deal and for me like um i was dedicated i would throw myself in front of a train for her i was just from the first second on i'm like i am gonna do everything to make this the most perfect kid ever but that first six months it was a lot of willpower and i'd say you know around six months is really when um you know, when I just fell head over heels madly in love. I mean, like, I always liked her. I just didn't like the fact that I had to wake up every two hours to feed her all night long. <laughs> My wife and I took shifts. So, you know, it'd be two nights on for me, then two nights on for her. <laughs> um, but um, again, I look back on that and everything I've ever done in my life, being a dad, for me is by far the most rewarding thing ever. Um, you know, I just, who would have thunk, you know? And, um, and it's only, you know, don't do it if it isn't for you. Uh, you know, that's like I tell people, uh, I, I always did want kids at some point. Um, and, and thanks to, you know, thanks to my wife, I would still be planning to have them at this age because I never, I never decided to sit down and pull the trigger. So, <laughs> Yeah. What's, so you said that so much of what you wanted to do was create this, this perfect being and give her this perfect life. What's the message that you're giving her now? Because she's, she's older. Is she 20? She's 20. Yeah, she's 20. And she works full time. And, and she's going to community college full time. And um, I'm, you know, ask me in 10 years, but um, she's, you know, my best friend and the most amazing young adult and funny and smart <laughs> and uh you know th th that old saying um you know you're never given more than you can handle but uh, thank goodness i can't handle a lot of drama when it comes to you know, <laughs> children um what about juxtaposing your father's experience with your experience how how does that create the message that you're giving your daughter um, I, she sees both sides of it. I will say that after she came into my life, I did ramp down the extreme part of my adventure. Um, I, I retired from hang gliding. I, it, it, to me, it was going to be a temporary retirement until she was about 17. And um, after 17 years of not flying, I could have gotten back into it. But I think at this point, if I get the money, I'll learn how to fly a glider plane or something, you know, with seat belts and nice and easy. So, um, I still did the adventures, but I, I, I ramped them down, you know, I, like I, I suddenly it was, I cannot die. I have to be there as a dad. And, and it's weird. Like, I really like there's stuff that I said, nope, too far for me now. 
um, I got a daughter. And, and I just, and, and there's part of my brain saying, are you insane? <laughs> like, you know, I was like, so a lot of the adventures like, okay, you may be super uncomfortable, but you're not going to die. <laughs> what's the other part of your brain saying? The one part saying you're insane. What's the other part saying? The other part saying, yeah, this is great because you are, this is the greatest thing ever. You're, you're raising this awesome human and this is really cool. And, and I, I don't know how to describe it, except that there's, there must be some kind of weird little thing that activates in your brain at, at a certain point where, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but um, it, it's just been a joy of, you know, everything from teaching her stuff to, you know, trying to set the right example and, and, and all that stuff of, of how I hope she would grow up and, and, and being a hundred percent honest, um, which at times the other parents didn't like <laughs> nothing bad, but just, you know, I always told her from a young age, I'm never going to lie to you. There may be things I may wait till you're older, but I'm never going to lie to you. Scariest thing in the world was when she was seven and she stamped her feet in front of me and asked me if Santa Claus was real or me and mom delivering presents. <laughs> oh, and how did you answer that? I, I just said, I, I said, tell you what, I want you to take about five minutes and think about this. Um, really think about it carefully. And, and, uh, and so she came back in five minutes, like, I really want to know. And I said, really and and i and i kind of I, I softened it a little I said, the spirit of christmas is real you know all that stuff's real as far as who pays for the presents and wraps them that's mom and dad and 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 there was the quivering lower lip and now i know what it now i know they say oh it took like you just found out there's no santa claus now i know what that face looks like um you know, i gave her a big hug and you know you're gonna be okay and well, yeah and she kind of you know, she kind of, at seven, that's about when you kind of knew. Um, some of the other parents thought, she didn't share it with her kids or anything, but when I told some of the other parents, they said, you are the worst father on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> and I just said, you know, the deal I have with my daughter is she knows there may be things that I'll say, I'm, I'm not going to tell you right now, but I'm never going to lie to you. And so that was one of those things. Yeah. You said, and we'll try to get you out on this. You said that back in, in rehab, after you broke your back, that you saw the quickie wheelchair, the quadra wheelchair, and you said, okay, this is okay. But you're yeah. still you're still working on that because because there's always a new iteration, right? And you're going, you've been working as an ambassador, going lighter and stronger. Yeah. And, and, what are you what are you trying to do what's what's the motivation in working with uh with uh, motion composite wheelchairs yeah well just a, a shout out so I, I am a brand ambassador for motion composites wheelchairs so they make carbon fiber wheelchairs super light um adjustable damp ride um to me it's the leading edge it's the next level of of um high performance uh fit and coolness in wheelchairs and from that first quickie wheelchair, I saw that that was such a massive life changer that, yeah, I'm going to look cool. It's like wearing a cool, you know, it, it's, it's my style. And when I first got in my first quickie, wow, it was like I could fly after getting in that hospital chair. 
I, I must have just done circles and just pushed back and forth, up and down. This is just testing it out in the hospital for like an hour where they finally, okay, you know, PT time's over. You got to get back in your, in your hospital chair. But I just remember it was just like flying. It was, it was more like I was in a, um, like a, a sports car or I'd gotten a new pair of skis or something than being in, uh, being disabled and in a chair. I mean, it was cool. It was, it was like being on a cool racing bike. Like I, this is cool. I can, I can be seen in this, you know, like I can, I could, I could pate with you. <laughs> and, and so anytime I see the latest and greatest, if there's a way to get involved and, and so, yeah, that's it. And that, thank goodness the can, the industry continues to, to evolve because it's um, you know, I never wish uh, an injury on anybody, but um, you know, as far as equipment, it's, it's the best time ever and it keeps getting better. Good technology and especially as we keep getting older yeah. as well we do more and more to to appear cool and the light part of it is that it's just it's just hard like just putting it in your car just taking the the chair and pulling it over your body and putting it in, in the back seat or whatever with one arm you know yeah. those shoulders get abused so oh, that that that's true thank goodness because my my shoulders are getting a little tired and you know it seems like the chairs are getting lighter along with the tiredness so <laughs> let, let's hope uh you know i definitely found that i'm having to do the little pt bands every day just to keep them going and <laughs> exactly bob thank you for talking us through you know from hot dog to your daughter i guess really i don't know there's there's some sort of some sort of range right there right we we went from the crazy 80s to the most heartfelt part of the the whole story so thank you for bringing us from from one part to the other really. oh, it's a pleasure chris thank you for having me yeah no this is awesome and thank you to all of you for listening if you didn't get a chance to hear the whole interview it will be on the one revolution page so you can go to the one revolution page and watch it in its entirety as we were telling bob before he arrived we will edit this slightly and and it'll become a podcast so wherever you see podcasts it'll be on youtube so you can actually watch and listen and it'll be on spotify and apple and all the other places that you find it so thank you very much if you enjoy what we've done here please tell your friends please like us please follow us i really appreciate that and we'll see you again next week with another amazing guest bob thanks a ton have a great yeah. day all right thanks